0: Amen. All right. Hey, speaking of Biden, how many of you guys remember a while back there was that video they were cycling there for a while? I don't know about you personally. I probably watched it 127 times. Who's counting? Uh, but it's when he kept falling down the stairs. Remember that on that one? And like three times. How many of you guys did that? Reverse, reverse, reverse. Do it back. Do it again. Do it again. Right? Three different times. And all of us, everybody doing, they going like, What's wrong with that guy? Is he weak? Is he frail? Why, why is he falling down so much? And they came up with all these theories. Well, believe it or not, Brian, this is your day. A mystery is solved. We have discovered, that's right, through our secret agent contacts. What is it that caused Biden to fall three different times? Let's take a look at that. (laughs) Yeah. Mystery solved, man. Now you know why. Makes sense to me anyway. But believe it or not, unfortunately, once again, the Biden administration came back with one of their lame solutions, right? And they, they came here, here's what they decided to do uh, to prevent that from ever happening and again. Uh, it's called Chair Force One. Can you believe that? Let's take a look at this. This is crazy. Yeah. Chair force one. Is that that lame or what? Give me a break. Uh, How many guys would say that's not just lame? That's about the lamest thing you could ever come up with. To to what? To try to prevent something bad or unfortunate from ever happening again in the future. Okay? And as lame as that one is, chair force one. Believe it or not, folks, our whole world is doing the same thing. When it comes to the seven-year tribulation, there really is something horrible that's coming in the future. And they got a lame so-called solution to deal with that event. And that lame solution is they laugh. They mock, they scoff at the rapture of the church, which is the only surefire way out of the seven-year tribulation we leave prior. But they laugh and they scoff and they mock at it. That's not a good solution. You need to receive Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, right now today. That's the only way to escape that horrible time frame. And so in order to help these people avoid the danger of being left behind at the rapture of the church prior to the seven-year tribulation, we're going to continue our study. Are you ready for the rapture? And again, folks, this is where a study I, 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 where I just called this is where the rubber meets the road. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we Christians can disagree on all things, but don't get this wrong. Don't get eternity wrong. Right. You can sit there chicken this chicken, that chicken, baked, chicken, fried chicken. Bo- it's all still chicken. It's all evil. <laughs> right. But, but, but man, don't get rapture wrong. Don't get eternity wrong. Don't miss the rapture. Don't be left behind. Come on. Right. And this is that kind of study. Now, we've already seen about four things about the rapture to help people to get ready for it. We saw the basis of the rapture, the importance of the rapture, the purpose of the rapture. And last time, if you recall, the reward for the rapture. Right? What's the the lie that's going in the church today? Oh, don't talk about Bible prophecy. Don't talk about the are you trying to scare me? Doom and gloom. Are you kidding me? It's not doom and gloom. Uh, You know, because we all know that after the raptures we saw in the last study, we go to that 13th Island Walmart. Yeah. No. We go to what? We get it's reward time. And last time I checked, the reward's way better than what we're experiencing here. So after the rapture, we saw the reward. It's what? We go to heaven. We go to heaven. We get new bodies. We get new surroundings. Yay. Okay, a lot better than here. Then we come back with Jesus. We get to be part of the millennium, right? Where we get to rule and reign with Jesus on a renovated planet, to garden of Eden-like conditions. There's going to be peace with nature. And then, think about it, no more invisible stuff. We get rewarded with seeing Jesus face to face. And I don't know about you, but man, whew, I'm hoping to give him a hug and say, thank you. Thank you for winning this incredible future for me in spite of me, and it starts at the rapture. How is that doom and gloom? That's nuts, man. And, and, and no wonder that the church is looking like their diet today consists of sour lemons, pickles, and prunes. Mm. You need to be reminded about your future, and it begins at the rapture. But I'm still preaching on it, so guess what, Andy? There's got to be more, and Andy is right. And that's weird. That was a normal voice, but we'll pass on that. Uh, <clears throat> the fourth thing that we're going to take a look at the rapture in order to help people get ready for it, and that's the timing of the rapture. And to me, that's just the next logical step, right? We know the rapture's real. We know it's important. We know it's purpose. And again, last time we saw the amazing reward for the Christian who gets to go in the rapture, right? But can we know when it's going to happen? Okay, well, uh, we're going to take a look at that, the timing of the rapture. And, and believe it or not, folks, it's a big deal, right? And, and there's, there's people that have different opinions on it, right? When does it happen? Is it prior to the seven-year tribulation, the pre-trib position? Is it halfway into the seven-year tribulation, the mid-trib position? Is it all the way to the very end, and then you go and come back down? The post-trib position, that's what they believe. Or is it only the super-duper spiritual Christians who get to go, the partial rapture position, right? The timing of the rapture is a huge deal, folks, As this guy shares, he says this. The time of the rapture is one of the most controversial and often debated issues in eschatology, the study of last things. The Bible teaches that at some point in the future, Jesus is going to come and the bodies of all the deceased age believers, the Christians who died before us, they will be resurrected and all the living believers still alive at that time will be raptured to meet the Lord in the air. The truth of the rapture is agreed upon by most Christians, but at the same time, it's not true when it comes to the timing of the rapture. The question is more than just a theological ivory tower debate. Rather, there's a great deal, listen, at stake on which view is biblical. Think about it. If the rapture occurs in our lifetime, your future is going to be very different between which one is correct, right? For instance, will you and I as Christians, will we be here to see the Antichrist? Will we be forced to choose whether or not to take the mark of the beast on our right hand or our forehead? Will we witness the carnage of God's wrath being poured out on the whole planet? Or will we be in heaven during this time frame, enjoying glorious fellowship and intimacy with Jesus and the rest of the church? Will you and I be here for none, for half, for three-fourths, or all of the seven-year tribulation? It's an important and sobering question. Listen, simply stated, will the church go through any or all the seven-year tribulation before the rapture occurs? Here it is. To put it another way, when will the believing be leaving? right? It's a huge issue, right? And so that's what we're going to take a look at today, okay? Now, again, uh, the Bible does not tell us the exact time or the day of the rapture. And we saw before, I think it's common sense. What would we do if we knew the exact day and hour of the rapture? God knows our sin nature. We goof off to the very end. Oh, it's time to get serious. Or if a person's not saved, what would they do? Okay, yeah, rapture happens in five minutes. I guess I better respond to the gospel, right? Same thing. So he doesn't tell us the exact term or without, But I do believe, and I'm convinced biblically, and that's the whole point, the Bible is supposed to determine our beliefs. But I, I believe biblically the Bible gives us clear evidence, not just good evidence, clear evidence, that the rapture must occur prior to the seven-year tribulation, i.e. the pre position And the next, Lord willing, for still alive and still here, and it hasn't happened. We're going to go several weeks in this. There is, there's not just a little, there's a ton of evidence in the scripture that the rapture happens prior to the seven-year tribulation. We're only going to be able to get a couple of them today, but the first one is this. The first biblical evidence, the rapture takes place prior to the seven-year tribulation is what's called the unknown hour, right? See what happens when you eat chicken? You, just, you melt and you fall. No, it's supposed to be like depicting the rapture, for those of you wondering. Uh, it's the unknown hour, okay? Now, we already saw in our previous first two studies If you recall, the rapture, biblically, is what's called an imminent event, right? And why is it called that? Because it could happen at any minute, right? There's no sign, no prophecy-related issue that has to happen in order for the rapture to occur. It's an imminent event. It could happen at any moment. And this is why we saw Paul, in our previous study, he was comforting the Thessalonica church to not worry about being in the seven-year tribulation, Uh, or the day of the Lord that starts at the seven-year tribulation and moves forward. And he says, you need to comfort one another. And he said, stop listening to these false teachers that say that the day of the Lord or seven-year tribulation has already come, i.e. you're in the seven-year tribulation and you missed the rapture, if you will. He says, don't fall for that. Comfort one another with these words. You leave prior to the day of the Lord, or in other words, the pre-trib rapture position. Why? Because it's imminent. And it can happen at any moment, and we need to be prepared for it. In fact, that's what the scripture says. Not just that the rapture is imminent, okay, but the Bible tells us what to do as we wait for this event that could happen at any time. Okay, the Bible says that we need to be waiting. We need to be expecting it because it's imminent. We need to be patient. We need to be alert. We need to live self-controlled lives. We need to get the gospel out as fast as we can because today could be that day. But let me give you just one of those passages that tells us what do we do as we wait for this imminent event called the rapture. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, we're going to read just verses 8 through 10. And let's take a look at what the scripture says we need to be doing in light of the imminency of the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10. You find 2 Thessalonians, what do you do? Hang on left. You find 3 Thessalonians, what do you do? Throw it away, it's not in there. That's right. All right. Book of Hezekiah, where do you go from there? Eh, throw it in the trash too. I'm just buying some time, folks. Uh, this is one of those. Things. Now, now, if you're looking for that part of the Bible that uh, the pages tend to be a little bit more white and crisp and clear and not too many wrinkles, that's probably First Thessalonians, all Right? unfortunately. Uh, but uh, let's go there. 1 Thessalonians, verse 1. What do we do in light of the imminency of the rapture? Paul tells us, okay, And this, again, is just prior contextually to 1 Thessalonians 4 that deals specifically with the rapture. So that's the context. Verse 8, let's take a look. What's he say here? The Lord's message rang out, he says there, verse 8, from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known where? Everywhere. Therefore, he says, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. And they tell us, listen, how you what? Turn from God to God from idols to what? Serve the living and true God. And to what? Wait for his son where? From heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who what? Rescues us from the coming wrath, okay? Which not only includes certainly hell, but the hell on earth, the seven-year tribulation, seven years of God's wrath, Non stop. You may be seated if you can there. But basically, Paul says that the Thessalonians, that uh, he's instructing them about the rapture. He tells us, What do you do as you wait for this imminent event that you don't know? It's an unknown hour. What do you do in the meantime? Go back in the world, start goofing off. Now, that's what the skeptic of the pre trib position says. They say, Well, if you guys teach this pre trib, it teaches people to goof off and get lazy. Are you kidding me? It does the exact opposite. It's an imminent event. It can happen today. I don't know when it's going to happen. And so guess what that does? It gets rid of procrastination. I got to get busy sharing the gospel now. I got to live. for Jesus, come back today. It cleanses you. How's my walk with Jesus? He's going to find me doing something. What am I doing? It is the exact opposite. But he tells us, what do we do? He says there, we need to, as they did, the Thessalonica church, we need to wait for the rescue. Jesus is coming from heaven, and he's going to rescue us from the coming of God's wrath. Now, again, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The Bible tells us a multitude of times, what are we supposed to be doing as we wait for this imminent event that we don't know? It's at an unknown hour. Well, let's take a look at those passages. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we what? Eagerly. We don't just wait. We eagerly await A savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because when the rapture happens, where do we go? Woohoo, heaven, yes, I can't wait. Okay, now, you young whippersnappers, you don't get that quite yet. The older you get, and when your body starts falling apart, and that that verse gets golden, right? Have you got to that point yet in your stage of life where you you bend over to straighten the wrinkles out of your socks, and you realize you ain't wearing socks? (laughs) That makes you almost want to wash your tongue out. All right, let's just move on. All right, <laughs> Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, what? Then you will also appear with him in glory. 1 Timothy six fourteen. To keep this command without spot or blame until the wind are appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. James 5, 8. You too be what? Patient and stand firm. Why? Because the Lord, his coming is near. First Thessalonians 5, 6. This is the chapter right after the rapture passage. So then let us not be like others who are what? Don't sleep, don't goof off, don't go back in the world now. But let us what? You need to be alert. You need to be self-controlled as we wait for the imminent unknown hour, the rapture. Titus 2.13, while we wait for the what? Blessed hope. Notice it's not doom and gloom, right? It's a blessed hope, right? The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus said this to the churches, Revelation 3.3, remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. Why? Because if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will what? You will not know at what time I will come to you. In other words, his, uh, the rapture is going to happen at an unknown hour. You ain't going to know. You need to be ready because, hey, all of a sudden it just happened. In fact, the Greek word harpazo, as we saw before, is where we get the word rapture from, okay? That's exactly what that word implies. It isn't just like, hey, the, the rapture is starting to happen. I better hurry up and finish my cheeseburger. (laughs) No, it's a bang. Just like that. And that's what the word rapture means, right? Uh, in, In fact, it means to not just remove, it's a sudden removal. It's not just a catching or snatching away. It's a sudden snatching, a sudden catching away. To seize, to carry off quickly, listen, a surprising quick departure, bang. You ain't gonna have time to change your clothes. You ain't gonna have time to finish mowing the yard. It's that fast. And it's going to happen when you don't know, and you need to always what? What do you say? Wait, be patient, stand firm, live self-control, godly lives. Why? Because you need to be a positive advertisement for Jesus. Get busy sharing the gospel. Why? Because we're on a giant rescue mission. I, I know this might sound foreign, but did you know that God wants other people besides us to go to heaven? What a concept. Right? Okay. And so that's what we're supposed to be doing in the meantime. The rapture is imminent, and listen, it happens at an unknown hour. Now, here's my point. Only the pre-trib position maintains the biblical teaching of imminency and that it is at an unknown hour. Now, let me explain that, right? The pre-trib position, because it happens prior, nothing, there's no event that needs to take place. It could happen today. That maintains biblical imminency, unknown hour. All the other positions, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, ruin it. And that's what is one of the many reasons why I think they're unbiblical because they disagree with the scripture. Now, let me demonstrate that to you, right? Let's, let's just pick the, the first one in line, the mid-trib position, right? They believe the rapture happens in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. But what do we just see? It's imminent. It could happen any moment. And I don't know when, right? That's what the Bible teaches. But think about it. If the rapture is in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, I know biblically exactly when the seven-year tribulation starts. Daniel 9.27, Revelation six one. the white horse rider, the Antichrist makes a covenant with the people of Israel. Bang! As soon as that happens, Daniel's 70th week, the final seven, that's why it's a seven-year tribulation out of two or five or 122, Daniel, it starts, and then Revelation 6 tells me the exact order of events, also Matthew 24, we'll get to that in a second, that it tells me the exact order of events that come next. You got the sealed judgments, the white horse rider, the red horse rider, the, the black horse, the, the famine, the martyrdom, the signs in the sky, and bang, right? So here's my point. If the rapture happens in the middle, then all I got to do, if I'm supposed to be in the seven-year tribulation, as soon as that Antichrist makes the covenant with Israel, I just set my clock. And I know I got exactly three and a half years Before the rapture. But what does the scripture say? You don't know when. And it's the same thing with the other positions. Once you put the church in the seven-year tribulation, you can make the rapture a calculable event. But what's the scripture say? You don't know when. Only the pre trib position maintains biblical uh, imminency and the unknown hour. I like what one guy had said, a prophecy teacher. He said, these people that keep trying to squeeze the church in there, even though the church is not in there, and we're just getting started, and all the massive amount of reasons why biblically we're not. It's not just some convenient form of escapism, right? The, but the term he puts for those people that just want to squeeze the church in the... set He calls them tribulation wannabes. You just want to be in there for some reason. But, I mean, if, hey, if, if the Scripture taught that, we need to deal with that. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. So, unfortunately, these people, as we'll see, they're, they're guilty of twisting the Scripture to try to squeeze the church in the time frame that we're not a part of. Now, not only that, some of the other positions, especially post-trib, and they put the church, they say, we're going through all the seven-year tribulation, and then here's your blessed hope. As Paul says, encourage, comfort one another with these words. You're going through the whole seven-year tribulation, and here's your blessed hope. You get raptured, come right back now. That's the post-trib position. Isn't that crazy? But one of the things they do is they confuse the rapture with the second coming that happens at the end. And so they take rapture passages, and they say, well, that's why it's at the end, because, you know, it's right here. No, that's the second coming. That's two different events. Now, let me give you just a smidgen of that proof that the rapture and the second coming, two totally different events, right? At the rapture, Christ comes in the air. The second coming, he comes to the earth, right? At the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. At the second coming, he comes with the saints. We come back with him. We've been in heaven that whole time, Revelation 19. At the rapture, believers are taken away, but the second coming, unbelievers are taken away. Uh, Christ claims his bride at the rapture, but the second coming, he comes with his bride. Okay? Christ gathers his own at the rapture, but the angels gather the elect after the second coming there. Christ comes to reward at the rapture. He comes to judge at the second coming. There's no imminent signs. It could happen any moment. The rapture, hey, many signs preceded. All the whole seven-year tribulation, the seal judgments, the, the, the uh, trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, then, right? All kinds of things have to happen before Jesus comes back at the second coming at the end. It's revealed only in the New Testament, the rapture. It was a mystery, the scripture says, to the Old Testament. But the second coming is revealed in the Old and New Testament. The rapture is a mystery. The second coming was foretold. The Mount of Olives is unchanged at the rapture, but in the second coming, it's divided. It's a time of blessing and comfort, the rapture, but the second coming is a time of destruction and judgment. Uh, only involves believers at the rapture, but the second coming involves Israel and the Gentile nations. The rapture occurs in the blink of an eye, right? But the second coming, the whole world sees them coming back. Two totally different events there. The tribulation begins after the rapture, but then after the second coming, the millennium begins, right? Not only that, the believers go to heaven at the rapture, but believers return from heaven, Revelation 19, at the second coming. Believers get glorified bodies at the rapture, but the elect remain in the same bodies, and they march into the millennial kingdom at the second coming believers go to the father's house but the elect stay on earth at the second coming and satan remains free after the rapture right doing the dirty deeds during the seven but guess what he's bound at the second coming right during the whole millennial kingdom that's one of the reasons why it's so wonderful during that time frame and then the false prophet and the antichrist are free after the rapture because he's the one that after the rapture makes the treaty with israel and does his dirty deeds throughout there well guess what the second coming, the scripture says the false prophet and the antichrist, they go straight into the lake of fire, right? And then finally, unbelievers remain on earth at the rapture, but second coming, we'll see this in a second, the angel harvest. Unbelievers are picked up by the angels and they're cast straight into hell. How could you say those are the same event? No wonder your position's messed up. Two totally different events. This is 20 that I came up with. I'm sure there's probably more, okay? But again, you got two totally different events, And listen, only the pre-trib position of the rapture allows for the rapture to remain imminent and unknown. Every single one of the other positions, mid-trib, pre-rep, post-trib you saw, once you're in, you can calculate it. But the scripture says, I don't care how many calculators you got. I don't care how many math degrees you got. I got a vision from God and he told me, I don't care. No one means no one. It's going to happen at an unknown hour. And only the pre-trib position maintains that biblical truth. Right? That's just the first reason. The second one is this. The second biblical reason the rapture takes place prior to the seven year tribulation is, hello, the absence of the church. Okay? The absence of the church. Now, I think to the, this is pretty obvious to me. You would think that if the church, the bride of Christ, really was going to be thrust into the worst time in the history of mankind, as Jesus said, describing the seven year tribulation, He's the one that saved us. He's the one who died on the cross for us so that we could even be a part of the church and be saved. Then you would think that he would at least uh, be very blunt and clear. And if he's going to speak about that time frame and we're going to be there, then we're going to be mentioned, the church, during that time frame all over the place, right? I mean, we're mentioned right now all over the place. And surely he would do this. Folks, we aren't mentioned anywhere because we're not there, right? I and mean, I think it's pretty obvious. We see that in a couple of ways that I want to deal with. And the first way is with the outline of Revelation. When you take a look at the outline of Revelation, it, it lines up again, shocker, with the pre-trib position. That once you hit future events, dealing with the seven-year tribulation, the church is gone. It's church is not mentioned. Why? Because we're not here. Right? Let's take a look at that outline real quick. It's, it starts off with the things which you have seen, i.e. in the past. And that's uh, chapter one, and that's John's vision of Jesus and Revelation. Then he switches to the things that are now, including today, and that's what we see him dealing with chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia Minor, right? Then he switches to the things that which will take place later. Okay? The things that are in the future yet to come, and that's chapters 4 through 19, the seven-year tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. Then chapter 20 is dealing with the millennial reign of Christ, which we're not a part of. If you can believe some people like to say, you're in the millennium now. <laughs> uh, Satan is bound during the millennium. I think we could verify that's not happening right now, right? There's going to be peace with nature. I think it'd be verified right now. It probably would be a dumb thing to stick your hand or head into a lion's mouth. Yeah, that's probably Yeah, no, okay. it's not happening. It's crazy. And then another future thing, the final thing is called the state of eternity, in theological terms, the very final, 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 final thing, that's chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth, okay? The church is only mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 concerning the events that happen now, but never in the future, seven-year tribulation, uh, dealing with those events. Now, this is not some nifty pre-trib twisting of Scripture to come up with this nifty outline to support your position. This is actually what the Scripture teaches. We get this outline from the book of Revelation, the very first chapter, Right? Uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, right? Therefore, what you've what? What you've seen, right? Chapter 1, and then what? What is now? Chapters 2 and 3, dealing with the church, and then what? And what will take place later, okay? But let's get more specific about the church's absence, not just with the outline of Revelation, but the omission of the word church itself. Again, you would think, man, if we're going to be in the seven-year tribulation, uh, man, we're going to be mentioned all over the place. I mean, the book of Revelation is one of the biggest prophetic sources of minute detail of what's going to be going on during that time. And man, if we're going to be there, boy, you would think we'd be all over the place, every other verse or something like that, and God would tell us how to survive. You don't see that. In fact, you don't even see the word church ever. Now, here's what's interesting. When you contrast that to the things that are now, hey, God doesn't shy away. When he wants to speak of the church, he uses the word church. In fact, in the exact same book, let's take a look at Revelation one through three. He uses the word church 19 times. Count them up yourself. 19 times. Right. But when he switches to future events, the seven year tribulation, how many? Zero. None. And and again, this is the same book, the same author, John, the apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit. When he wants to talk to the church, when he wants to mention the church, when he said, hey, church, pay attention, he used that word. But when he switches to the seven-year tribulation, not once. The only other time is after the seven-year tribulation, right? Dealing with the future that we get to be a part of, the millennium, new heavens, new earth, you only get one more time after that, okay? The word church is absent because we are absent. How many guys can figure that out without any help? That's right. Brian doesn't even have to share his granola bar, right? We can all just figure that out ourselves, okay? One guy, he puts it this way. He says, it's remarkable, That in the key section dealing with the seven year tribulation of the Bible, right, he says that there is an absolute silence on the word church. Okay, the Greek word for church, ecclesia, it occurs 20 times in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1 through 3, it's mentioned 19 times where Jesus specifically addresses the church, right? He he talks about uh, uh, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, and he gives detailed instructions and admonitions to the church. When he wants to speak to the church, he uses the word church. But then suddenly, starting in Revelation 4, John shifts from an in-depth message to the church, to total silence of the church for the next 15 chapters. Okay? And he goes on, he says, uh, and then, but the church, it doesn't appear again until after the second coming of Jesus Christ, Revelation 19, where she is pictured as a bride beautifully adorned for her husband who returns to earth with her glorious bridegroom at the second coming. Listen, the absence of the word church in the book of Revelation is compelling evidence that the church will not be present on earth during the seven-year tribulation. If God wanted to uh, uh, tell us that we're going to be in the seven-year tribulation in the book of Revelation that gives us the most detailed information about the seven-year tribulation, he's going to use that word. Total silence. Why? Because we're not there. We're not there. The seven-year tribulation deals with the Jewish people and the Gentile nations, not the church. The church age is over. And Paul clearly says that at the fullness of the Gentiles, when that last that we saw before... When that last Gentile gets saved, it only God knows, bang, we're out of here. And then God, he's not done with Israel. His eyes go back on Israel because he's going to fulfill the promises he made to them that are eternal, including the promise of the millennial kingdom where somebody from the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will rule and reign on the planet, right? That's the order that we see uh, in the scripture. Okay, but that also means uh, not only the omission of the word church, that's also why other books of the Bible that deal with the seven-year tribulation, guess what you also will not find? You're not going to find the church. Eventually, we'll get into even Daniel chapter 9, okay, and and, and the books and the events dealing with the seven-year tribulation there. It's not dealing with the church, it's dealing with the Jewish people, and we'll get that. But what I want to hone in on today is Matthew chapter 24. And the reason why I want to deal with that is because Matthew 24, they say, well, it's there in the New Testament. It's, it's the New Testament, so it's got to be dealing with the church. No, not at all, right? In fact, there's, there's uh, still uh, the New Testament. Yeah, the, the Gospels are in the New Testament, but guess what? Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet and the church wasn't born until Acts chapter 2. So you have to be very careful in your interpretation biblically of the Gospels because it starts out still under the Old Covenant, Right? So pay attention. And I'm telling you, Matthew 24, unfortunately, is one of those chapters that even prophecy teachers get wrong. And they, too, not only want to try to squeeze the church in Matthew 24, just like they do with the uh, revelation events of the seven-year tribulation, but they'll even try to quote from Matthew 24 a passage in Matthew 24. One will be taken. One will be left. and They'll say, that's the rapture. No, it's not. So I want to take some time, and I want to deal with that. Right, you don't see the word church. You don't see the church in or mentioned in the seven-year tribulation, and so therefore, other books in the Bible that deal with that time frame, the scriptures consistent. You don't see them either. So let's tear apart Matthew twenty-four and see why it is not mentioning and talking about that time frame. First of all, Matthew twenty-four. Okay, uh, the church is not born till Acts chapter two. How many guys could realize that Acts chapter two follows Matthew twenty-four? For those of you hooked on that, that's just an easy, quick one. But also, we know that Matthew 24, contextually, biblically, cannot be referring to the church, because what we're going to see is Matthew 24, the coming that Jesus is talking about, this is the second coming at the end, and they ask him, what's the signs of that? And he starts at the seven-year tribulation, and he moves forward. And we're not a part of it. But let me give you that proof that Matthew 24 is not dealing with the church, it's dealing with the Jewish people. And the first way is, he starts off that chapter, Jesus, talking about the Jewish temple, being torn down and destroyed, which did happen in 70 AD. Let's take a look at that. Matthew 24, 1 through 2. Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples. They came up to him and called his attention to these buildings, and they said, hey, do you see all these things? Jesus asked, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And that was fulfilled in 70 AD with the invasion of the Uh, roman army okay but then just a few verse later he starts talking about a future rebuilt jewish temple okay that comes back into existence again that apparently the jewish people are worshiping again right that's what we see later matthew 24 15 through 16 so when you see jesus speaking standing in the holy place the temple the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet daniel let the reader understand then those who are in judea flee to the mountains And again, as we saw before, this is the reference of the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation where the Antichrist commits what's called the abomination of desolation. He goes up into the rebuilt Jewish temple, and he has the audacity to declare himself to be God. Okay, that's what Jesus is talking about there. Now, here's my point. The Jewish temple being rebuilt or destroyed, coming back again in the future, has no significance for the church. And the reason why is because Jesus says right now, our concern is not being a uh, 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 rebuilding a man-made temple, but in focusing on that we have become God's temple, right? And that's what we see here, 1 Corinthians three 16. Don't you know that you yourselves, church, are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? So again, the church is only concerned about being God's temple, not a future rebuilt Jewish temple, okay, in the seven-year tribulation. But listen, here's my point. The temple being rebuilt is a huge issue for guess who? The Jewish people in whom we'll be in the seven-year tribulation, in whom Matthew 24 is addressing, not the church. In fact, as we saw in other studies, they are ready to go. They got the articles, all that. They just need somebody to cut a deal with them and give them permission. And of course, that's what's going to start the seven-year tribulation. But, but let me give you some more evidence. Contextually, Matthew 24 cannot be dealing with the church. Jesus also tells the people that time frame that after the abomination of desolation, you need to what? You need to flee to the mountains, right? That's what we see here, Matthew twenty-four sixteen. Then let those who are aware in Judea flee to the mountains. Now let's tear that apart. He says those in Judea, where's that? That's just, uh, just south of Tupelo. Going down there, Judea. Take a left of that road. That down there. What you gonna do? Okay, whatever. I can't do as good as Andy, but that's all I got. You know, I'm saying, right? Where's Judea, Israel? So, so again, think about that. This can't be the church, right? I mean, uh, only a small fraction of Christians live in, you know, across, from all the world, of Christians. Only a small fraction live in Israel. So, this, so if this was the church he's dealing with, that would make this command ludicrous to. Those who are in Judea, it it, it, doesn't make sense. And then he says, where? Flee to the mountains, right? Well, most people would say the mountain area he's talking about there is fleeing from Judea, Israel, into the ancient rock city, Petra. Okay. I don't know if you guys know the proximity of that thing, but can all the church, all Christians around the world fit in the Petra area? No. But guess what? A one-third Jewish remnant can, in whom this is addressed, Okay, And then for more proof, Jesus then says these people, hey, and when you're fleeing from Judea to the mountains, uh, boy, you better pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath, right? That's what he says here, Matthew 24, 20. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. Again, in the seven-year tribulation, at the halfway point after the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist, Zechariah tells us he's going to go on a hunting spree for the Jews. And Jesus says, you guys better run, and you better flee to the mountains, and you better hope it doesn't take place on the Sabbath, Question, do you and I worship on the Saturday Sabbath? So how could it be referring to the church here? He's, again, giving us another clue. He's talking to the Jewish people at that time in the seven-year tribulation. That's the audience that he's addressing here, okay? We worship in Sunday, on Sunday in honor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't have the command to worship on Saturday. We have the Lord himself, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. The scripture says we're not to be concerned with the Saturday Sabbath. Right, We have the reality. The other stuff was a shadow. I didn't say that. The Apostle Paul said that. Right? Colossians chapter 2, 16-17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you, Christian, by what you eat or drink, or with regards to a religious uh, festival, a new moon celebration, or a what? Sabbath day. Why? Because these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in who? Jesus. And so we don't have to worry about the Saturday, Sabbath, we have the lord of the sabbath but we and so technically we could worship Jesus anytime we want but traditionally biblically we gather together as the new testament church made up of Jews and Gentiles we're all one in Christ on Sunday i didn't say that the bible did acts 20 verse 7 on the first day of the week sunday okay we what came together to break Bread. But again, here's my point. How could Jesus be referring to the church in Matthew 24 when he says to these people, pray that your flight does not take place on the Sabbath. We don't worship on the Sabbath. But the Jewish people today still do. That's why this is dealing with them. All right. Now, let me give you another one. The chapter starts off with the apostles asking Jesus signs of his coming. The coming he's talking about is not the rapture. It's his second coming at the end of the age, i.e. the end of the seven year tribulation. All right. Let's take a look at that. Matthew twenty four three, as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, When will this happen and what will be this sign of your coming, the second coming, and at the end of the age? Okay, again, he's talking about the signs. How do they know that that not rapture? How do they know that they're getting close? The Jewish people are getting close to the end of this final week of Daniel's seventieth week prophecy, the seven year tribulation. How do we know the signs of the second coming? right that's that's the context is what he's talking about here okay and this is why when you take a look at Matthew 24 and Luke 21 which is a parallel passage and you combine it with Revelation 6 which is what starts the 7-year tribulation the seal judgments and moves forward it's all the signs leading up to the second coming of Jesus at the end of the 7-year tribulation which tells you then that Matthew 24 is a parallel passage of Revelation 6, which is all about the seven-year tribulation, which we're not a part of. Now, let me bring that out for you because it's perfect because God never makes mistakes. And if, in fact, Matthew 24 is dealing with the signs starting at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation moving forward, then it should line up perfectly with Revelation 6, right? Well, guess what? It does, tit for tat, because it's the same time frame. It's dealing with the seven-year tribulation. Let me give you just a couple of that evidences, right? Matthew 24, how does it start off with? Tell us, Jesus, what some signs of your coming, the second coming. How do we know it's getting close to your second coming? He starts perfectly chronologically off at the first event and then moves forward, all the way to the end. Matthew twenty four, he says, "What? Watch out for false Christ." Revelation six, which starts the seven year tribulation, what's to start off with? The antichrist, the white horse rider, exactly the same. And then Jesus said right after that, "What's he saying?" The next verse, wars, rumors of wars. Watch out for that. That's another sign of the second. coming. What's the next? seal judgment the red horse rider a global war exactly the same the next one jesus said watch out for famine well what's the next seal judgment in the seven-year tribulation the black horse the global famine and then jesus talks about this huge death coming well what's the next seal the pale horse rider one-fourth of the earth there's gonna be a global death exactly the same jesus then says about a martyrdom that's coming what's the next seal the fifth seal the altar of souls a global martyrdom People are slaughtered like flies, including the Jewish people. Luke 21 then says, signs are going to happen in the sky. What's the next seal judgment in the seven-year tribulation? It's the exact same thing, folks. Signs in the sky. Do you think that's by chance? No. The reason why they're perfectly matching is because they're both dealing with the same time frame. The Jewish people in the seven-year tribulation. Not the church. And then I got to give you uh, 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 even more proof of that uh, because... Unfortunately, you'll even have some so-called pre-tribbers quoting passages from Matthew 24 that, as we just saw, clearly deal with Israel, clearly deal with the time frame of the seven-year tribulation, and they say, oh, that's the rapture. One will be taken at that mill. One will be left. Have you ever heard that? Don't quote that as a rapture passage, not just because I say so, because it's not biblical. The taking and leaving the gathering is not talking about the rapture. It's the angel harvest that happens at the end in preparation for the millennial kingdom. But let's take a look at those passages. None of Matthew 24 deals with the church because all of Matthew 24 deals with the events of the seven-year tribulation. Here's what And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his what? Elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. And Matthew 24, 40 to 41, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Oh, no, it says right there. The church is the rapture. We're in the seven-year tribulation. It's all about us. No, it's not. Contextually, this is at the very end of Matthew 24, verse 41, Right, just prior to the uh, final event, the second coming. And we already saw that Matthew 24 cannot and does not deal with the church. So, so what, what's this one's taken, one's left thing then? It's the angel harvest. Right? Now, again, I'm not saying that. God does. He, he, he tells us this, right? shocker, from the Bible. Okay, let, let's take a look at what, what what do you mean, angel harvest? Well, let's describe that event. Right, Revelation 14, 14 through 16. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another what? Angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. This is the prophetic term called the angel harvest that happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation, at Jesus' second coming in preparation for the millennium. Now, it's not only Scripture interprets Scripture. We see this in two other parables from Jesus, Matthew 13, right? And, uh, or Mark 13 and Matthew 25, the tares and the weeds, the sheep and the goats. It's the exact same event. It's the angel harvest, right? Matthew 13, let's take a look at that. And then he, he, he left the crowd and, and went to, into the house, and the disciples came to him and says, "'Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field.'" And so Jesus answered, he said, "'The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. "'The field is the world, "'and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom.'" He's talking about the millennial kingdom, right? "'The weeds are the, ones that, uh, are the sons of the evil one, "'and the enemy who sows them is the devil.'" The harvest, notice the angel harvest, is at the when? End of the age. The seven-year tribulation, Jesus that coming. And the harvesters are who? Angels. And the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire. Okay, what's that? Hell, right? So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they'll weed out of his kingdom. right? Everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where's that? hell and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom the millennial kingdom other father he was ears let him hear let me give you just one more passage here matthew 25 the sheep and the goats when the son of man comes in his glory the second coming and all the what angels with him he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory all the nations will be gathered before him and what's he going to do he's going to separate them those that are still left alive on planet earth at the time of His second coming Right? He, and he's going to separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right he'll put the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. All of these are dealing about the same event. It's the angel harvest at the uh, end of the seven-year tribulation. At the second coming of Jesus, it has nothing to do with the rapture. And then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels, and then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. One guy says this, it's done. The goats are destroyed. The tares are destroyed. The good are kept, the sheep and the wheat. And one guy says this, it is clear that since the church is not mentioned in Matthew 24, then verse 31 cannot be a reference to the rapture of the church. In other words, you know, the one taken at the middle, the one left. It can't be. Instead, listen, as one studies the context, it becomes quite clear that our Lord speaks of an end-time, listen, regathering of elect Israel, the one-third that he sovereignly protects, in order to return them to the land, because they're all over the world. How are they going to get back there? And in order to return them to the land for the millennial kingdom. Listen, he says, instead of using El Al Airlines, the Israeli airline, the Lord will use angelic carriers to transport his people back to their land. This has nothing to do with the rapture. I wish people would stop quoting it as a rapture because it's not biblical. Rather, the event that he's talking about is the angel harvest. And that's why you have two groups of people. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, the people on planet Earth are gonna be in two groups, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. And basically you have the remnant of the Jewish people That God sovereignly protects, Revelation 12, by the Archangel Michael. Antichrist, Zechariah 13, is going to slaughter two thirds of them, unfortunately. Then you're going to have any of the believing Gentiles, okay, that do get saved. Most of them are going to be slaughtered like flies, the scripture teaches. Even their heads chopped off, Revelation 20. But there'll be a few left alive. So these people need to be gathered up because they get to go into the millennial kingdom, right? What's he going to do? Get a bunch of buses? Right? Say, well, you guys better hurry and get here. I'm going to give you five days, and you better get over in a boat. Right? There's that Tupelo, Mississippi thing. But anyway, okay, but guess what? You're still going to have, guess what, left on planet. Those that still scoff and mock and say, no. Now, most of the planet's going to be ravaged at that point, but you're still going to have some unbelievers on the planet. And so what's he going to do with those? Do they get to go in the millennial kingdom? No. So he sends another batch of angels, and what's the scripture say? These people, listen to this. Somehow, some way, they survived all the seven-year tribulation. And you know what reward they got? The angels came, swooped them up, and chucked them straight into hell. Isn't that wild? This not only has nothing to do with the rapture, it's the angel harvest, which blows me away because all the other people that put the church in the seven-year tribulation They're not selling, quote, the blessed hope that you and I, that we're not going to step one nanosecond in the seven-year tribulation. Not just because of escapism, because that's what the scripture teaches. That's why it's called the blessed hope. That's why Paul says, encourage one another with these words. If I'm in the seven-year tribulation, the worst time in the history of mankind, what's so encouraging about that? But these people who put the church in the seven-year tribulation, they're raking in millions of dollars. because we. Share the blessed hope. You could leave with us at the rapture through Jesus Christ. You could escape not only hell, but hell on earth. Right? They sell fear because what they say is you're going to be in the seven year tribulation and you better hang on. Right? Our goal is to get busy living for Christ, sharing Christ, sharing the gospel. Their solution is, you better buy survival gear. You better buy some five-pound buckets of lime. You better get 85 pounds of bean. You better get rice. You better get this. You better get a bug out shelter. You better get a Jeep, a four-wheel drive. You better make it. Uh, you better survive the 70- uh. I'm not joking. And so people are freaking out instead of longing for his appearing. Why are they doing that? I'm convinced because this is involved. I had one prophecy teacher tell me just one of these so-called Christian ministries that put the church in the seven-year tribulation. Of course, what they say is, you're going to be in the seven-year tribulation. You're going to be in seven years. And then, then what's the next breath? Well, hey, go to our website and click on this and buy this and buy that. They sell survival gear, right? Just the one said in one year alone, they just off the survival gear, made somewhere like 70 to 80 million dollars. There's big bucks in selling fear. But what's the scripture teach? Even if somebody could survive all the way to the end of the seven-year tribulation, you're the ultimate survivor. (laughs) You're going straight into hell. One day, an angel will come and swoop down and scoop you up and throw you straight into hell. Wow, tribulation wannabes. I wouldn't want to be in that camp. But let me close real quick, one last point. And we'll close. You want even more proof that Matthew 24 has zilcho to do with the church. I think it's pretty obvious when you take a look at the context, amen? Okay, all you got to do is compare the rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, with the events of Matthew 24. And they don't even coincide at all because it's two totally different things. And let's revisit that rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, the Christians who've died before us. Here's the order for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And who goes first? The dead in Christ go first. They get their resurrected bodies and we're hard on their heels. After that, we are what? still alive. We haven't experienced death and our left will be Harpazo caught up. It's where we get rapture together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord on the earth. No, that's the second coming in the air. Right, and we'll be with the Lord forever. And since you're going to be in the seven-year tribulation, you better go to that website. You better get that survival gear. You better get a, a, a genuine buck knife. You better get you to heaven with a bunch of gas. And you no encourage one another with these words. Now compare this with Matthew 24, that's dealing with the Jewish people in the seven-year tribulation. There's nothing alike. It has nothing to do with it. Two totally different audiences, two totally different time frames. Where does First Thessalonians 4, the rapture passes, mention the darkening of the sun? Like Matthew 24. Uh, it doesn't. You know why? Because Matthew 24 is dealing with the seven-year tribulation we left prior to the rapture. Right? On and on it goes. Where does First Thessalonians 4 mention the moon, not giving its light? It doesn't. Where does it mention the stars falling from the sky, like Matthew 24? Uh, it doesn't. Uh, where does it mention the powers of the heavens being shaken? Uh, it doesn't. Uh, where does First Thessalonians four, the Rapture passage, mention the, all the tribes of the earth mourning? Uh, it doesn't. You might start to see a pattern here. Uh, where does First Thessalonians four mention all the world uh, seeing the coming of the Son of Man? It doesn't, because that's the Second Coming, not the Rapture, right? Uh, where does First Thessalonians four mention God sending forth His angels to do the harvest? Uh, well, it, it, it doesn't. Uh, in Matthew twenty-four, the Son of Man comes on the clouds. First Thessalonians four, uh, the ascending believers are in the clouds. Okay, two different things. Matthew twenty four, the angels gather the elect. First Thessalonians four, the Lord Himself gathers the believers, and then it only speaks of the voice of the archangel. Matthew twenty four, uh, uh, nothing is said about the resurrection. First Thessalonians four, we just saw it's the whole central point of oh, the dead go first, right? And then we're hard, it, we get a resurrected body. It's, it's about the resurrection at the rapture. Matthew twenty four, the order of ascent is absent. First Thessalonians four, it's the central point again. The dead go first. We're hard on the heels, right? It's two totally different events. And then Matthew 24, the elector gathered after Christ's arrival to the earth, the second coming. While in First Thessalonians 4, the rapture, the believers are gathered in the air and taken to heaven. Again, you compare the classic rapture passages that nobody disagrees with, compare it to Matthew 24. None of it has anything to do with the church. And I wanted to bring that up. It might seem like a little, you know, sidetrack, but it's very important. If anything, so you realize that those passages, two will be there. One will, it's not a rapture passage. It's the angel harvest that's going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation, okay? And so, again, as we, we close, that's the whole point, that we need to make sure that we're ready for this event, okay, one way or another. But the third biblical evidence that we know the rapture takes place prior to the seven-year tribulation is the location of the church. Not just the absence of the church, but the location of the church. And, and typically, when you ask this to anybody else, all the other positions— mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib. And you say, well, where's the church? And they say, oh, that's simple. That's simple. The location of the church is in the seven-year tribulation. And then for supposed proof, they say, well, the word saint is mentioned in the events of the seven-year tribulation. And that's referring to the church. Therefore, the church has to be in the seven-year tribulation. Is that true? No, not even close. But we're out of time, so we'll have to deal with that next time. But here's my point. The word church, the church itself, is absent from Revelation, Matthew twenty four, all the books dealing with the events in the seven years tribulation. You know why? Because we're not there. And so the point for you and I is to do what the scripture tells us to do, right? What do we do? What did Paul tell the Thessalonica church as we are waiting for this imminent unknown hour event, the rapture? Wait. Be patient. Stand firm. Live self-controlled, holy Godly lives. Get the gospel out. Why? Because we're on a rescue mission. That's our response. It doesn't promote laziness or apathy. Are you kidding me? It has a wonderful way of cleaning up your walk with Jesus Christ. Because, folks, the facts are this. We wouldn't want our worst enemy to be in the seven-year tribulation. Let's take a look at what's going to happen to the planet after the rapture. We'll close in prayer after this. Are you ready for the rapture as a Christian? You know how you know? You're not living for this world. You're longing for his appearing. And since you know it's at an unknown hour and it's imminent, it could happen today. Your life has a pattern of every day. You're staying tight and living close to Jesus Christ. And you're getting the gospel out to as many as you can because you realize we're on a giant rescue mission. And I don't have time to get distracted. Because as soon as I leave, that's coming to the planet. And I wouldn't want my worst enemy there. That's how you know you're ready for a Christian. If you're not a Christian, what in the world are you waiting for? This is not a game. You can laugh, you can scoff all you want. But that is coming. And it's going to be way worse than that. Praise God, God made a way way out through Jesus Christ, right there through the cross of Christ. That's the one and only way out. And he is willing to rescue you from the coming wrath. If you would just say, yes, Jesus, I am a sinner. I, I am disqualified for heaven. I have sinned against you, a holy and righteous God. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe he took the death penalty in my place. I trust in his work, not my own, on the cross. His work on the cross to save me, to rescue me from hell and hell on earth. I entrust my life to you. I confess Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the grave. The Bible says if you do that now, you won't go there. What are you waiting for? Please, if that's you, receive Christ as your Savior today. Amen. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple of things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? God bless.